0: All right. We're in uh, a study on the book of John. And I've loved this study. I, I think I say that every time I speak. I've loved this study. It has really worked on me uh, spiritually. It has changed my life in a number of ways. I'm, I've been just been amazed at what God has been teaching me. And we've seen Jesus in these first few chapters in the way that he is, is uh, breaking down barriers, in the way that he is knocking down walls, and he's dealing with people who are up at the up at the the highest parts of society and people who are at the absolutely lowest parts of society and everybody in between, and he makes a point of dealing with them. What's amazing to me, and I've shared this before, but what I really love, is that we see, like with the woman at the well, Jesus let her talk. He let her have per say. This is so important for us as we deal with people and sometimes as we're sharing Christ that we let people talk. We let people tell their story. We let people give their ideas and what they're thinking and then gently come in and try to influence them and, and get them to think about spiritual things and greater things and godly things. But it's so important that Jesus just let her talk. It's an amazing thing. He, he dealt with all these different people people that the Jews would have hated, people that the Jews would have loved. He dealt with all of them, and he let them talk. And he broke down barriers. He broke down sexual barriers. He broke down, he broke down racial barriers. He broke down status, societal barrier. He broke down barriers by talking to these people. We need to be the people who break down barriers. This is our calling to go and talk, and see, and love, and serve people, and break down barriers. Why? You know, I think about this. 20-something years ago, when I first took a group of teenagers to the Arizona Reservation, we talked about why we were doing this. And one was, we were talking about breaking down barriers, and we were talking about sharing the love of God, and then of loving people so that they knew there were people who loved them dearly, and so for twenty-something years, we go back every year, twice a year now, to continue that, to do that, because there are barriers there, incredible barriers, and so we want to break them, <clears throat> break them down for the sake, for the cause of Jesus Christ. So let me read to you. We're gonna. I, I put here the amazing Messiah. This word "amaze" comes up a couple times in this passage. The amazing Messiah. I put part one because we're going to have communion, so it's going to be a little bit of a shorter message, and this passage is going to end up breaking into two sermons. So it's John 5, 16 to 30, and I just want to read the the first four or five verses in John chapter 5. It's not on the screen. You just listen, or if you have your your Bible on your phone, you can read along. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In His defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work to do the, to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried to kill Him, all the more to kill Him. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Now that word amazed, I mentioned, is it's a wonderment. It's something that's outside the realm of normal human activity. It's something that you look at and you gasp and your jaw drops. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be amazed. You're going to be amazed. You think this healing was something? Wait for what's coming. So just kind of, Reviewing here a little bit what what we just talked about the past couple of weeks, this idea that Jesus healed this man and he told them, pick up your mat and walk. And the Pharisees' problem was that he picked up his mat because that is work and you're not allowed to work on Sabbath. You, you're, you're allowed to save a life, necessarily, and they couldn't figure out if healing was, was in that, so they weren't too sure. We, a number of them have written on that, whether healing is allowed or not on the Sabbath. Some took the weird idea that healing was against the law on Sabbath because it seemed to be some kind of a work. But they're angry because he's carrying... They said, it went up to him, they said, who told you to pick up your mat? You see, what they're, this is what they're hammering because they have these crazy rules that we, and we talked about. And the rules came out of a good place. I don't want to belittle too much. The rules came out of a good place. It came out of a place of trying to follow God. They were trying to quantify and get it into a system that they could understand of how they should follow God. And so they're angry with Jesus, not because he healed. They're angry because he told the man, you can pick up your mat and walk to do work because that superseded the accepted Jewish idea of what you could do on a Sabbath. He was rewriting the rules that they had established for hundreds of years, over a thousand years. So this, I mean, don't, I don't want to make this too small. This is an existential threat to their way of life. They're very worried about this. It means on so many different levels. And so to say when Jesus, uh, uh, when he's talking to them in verse 16, let's just pull that up. In verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I to him working. So in verse 16, what is he doing here? He's making a claim to authority. He's expanding. He's expanding on the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, You'll see certain passages that begin this way. You have heard, but I say to you. Now, what is Jesus doing when he says that? He's saying, you have heard, this is what the Pharisees teach. But I say to you. See, he's claiming authority greater than the authority of the Pharisees. He's claiming the authority over Scripture. He's claiming, I wrote this. And so he expands on this. He's contradicting the Pharisees' teaching. And so in verse 17... When he says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working, this really antagonized them. Because it says in verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Why? Because he he claimed God as his personal father. He made it personal. He's my father. They would say he's the father of Israel in a generic, a very general term, Jesus is saying, no, me, my, my personal father. He said this in a personal way. And he said that his work was the father's work. He's claiming this. it's It's an equality that he's claiming. Because in Jewish society, when a son came of age, he was considered equal with his father in the eyes of the society. And there's even more to it. And so they are angered. They're amazed by his arguments. No one has ever said anything like this to them before. They don't know of a time where anybody claimed this. There were other men who claimed to be the Messiah in in past history, but none of them made these kinds of claims. They just claimed to be a new military leader, just what the Jews thought was coming. Jesus steps up and says, hey, that's my father. We have a relationship father to son, and now I've come of age. And they're like, then you're claiming equality with God. No no one's ever claimed that before. And we have to remember, put yourself, and this is so important as we study scripture, put yourself in the place of the people who are in the passage, the people who are in the situation. Think about what the Pharisees are thinking. They are the keepers of the faith for the nation of Israel. They are looked to as the keepers, the leaders, the teachers of the faith. They are the arbitrators of what is right and what is wrong. They have power. They have position. Their job is to keep the nation on track spiritually, and they are considered, and this is not an exaggeration, they are considered the most righteous people alive in all of Israel. And Jesus is saying things to them that is totally driving them crazy, making them so mad. Now, the people of Israel believed this. They believed this about the Pharisees, that they are the righteous ones, because they'd been brought up in this system. They just said, this is what the righteous ones do. This is what the righteous ones look like. This is how the righteous ones dress. This is all the things they do. It's very hard to do. It was very expensive to do. You had to be rich to be able to fulfill everything that the Pharisees believed you should fulfill. Which is why for most Jews, they believed if you're rich, it's because God blesses you to be. You've done something good. You're a righteous person. That's why you're rich. And if you're not rich, you're not a righteous person. So Jesus is this incredible threat. He makes statements that call their whole system into question. He claims to have a higher authority than they do. He's claiming that he can say this is what Scripture means. And the only person who can say this is the one who wrote it. So what can we learn from this? Just right here, if we just stop for a second, what can we learn from this interaction? First of all, the first thing we have to learn is humility. The church has a history of missing at times what God is doing. And our problem is, I mean, I think about this sometimes. You know, I I read what people write. I read what... Uh, people who get into all these theological arguments, and I understand the arguments. I understand a lot that's going on there. But here's what I keep thinking. Do we really think we're so smart that we have God figured out? Now, no theologian would ever stand up and say, I've got God figured out. I understand that. But we have to be careful. We have to be humble because we haven't got God figured out. Do Do we really think that we're at the pinnacle I really believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to start saying, Oh my goodness, that's what that meant? Duh, right? I just feel like when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of duhs going on, right? Or dopes, something like that, like, <laughs> like the Simpsons or something. We're going to be like, Oh, I was thinking it was that way. I didn't, oh, this makes sense. Oh, I understand that better now. Oh, I see what was meant there. That's what's going to happen. Because God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. Mine are higher than yours. And so we can't really think that we have God's thoughts figured out. The Pharisees were pretty sure they had. They thought they had this down to a science. They had it all figured out. Now, I want to say something. I want to say there's a balance here. You know, it's, 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 I never want to get caught up... I, 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 don't, I want to understand there's a balance, but I never, want to get, I never want to miss what God's doing. I never want to get so caught up in what I think is important that I miss what God is doing. I never want to do that. Now, for me personally, and here's the a church, we establish things that we say are non-negotiables. We are going to say there are certain things. We feel like they're incredibly plain in Scripture. And we feel like they are essential to the faith. But as we move from there, we need to be careful and we need to be humble. Because it will begin to seep into our thinking that we have got it. And that is not true. So Jesus alienated the religious and the cultural authorities, not for the sake of alienation, not to stick it to the man, but but he did it for the truth of the word of God. So take, for instance, the early church. How did they respond to this? How did they move forward as these things began occurring? They expanded into, the, into Gentile areas, and they suddenly faced something, as the, as the early church at the very beginning was mostly Jewish, and they, they had these Gentile converts coming, and they realized they don't know anything that we know. What's the bottom line, you know? I mean, I mean, even Gentile converts, when they, when they became Christians, they knew, okay, everyone knows, okay, lying's wrong. Murder is wrong. But then it became, well, how do you, how do you define murder? What is, it? and so what happened was, and we, and we see this in Acts chapter 15, because the Gentiles knew some things were wrong, but there were some things that were horrific that they thought were fine, they were totally okay with. That they needed to teach them about this, about the things that God says is wrong, even though they think it's fine. I have a, uh, I call him a friend. I don't know if he really is my friend. We communicate by email a number of times. He he's uh, he's at Cambridge University in England, and he does this incredible research on on words and and ancient uh, parchment. The, one of the largest libraries in the world of. Parchments from the Middle East is in Cambridge University. And most of them are not translated yet. They just have them. They haven't, there's so many. They just haven't gone. And this guy has made it his life goal to start translating these things and see what it teaches us about the Word of God. And he's done some really cool stuff. And so in Acts chapter 15, I wanna, this is gonna be a little bit of a rabbit trail. Hip-hip hop, here we go. Instead, we should write to them. That is, they're deciding what to tell the Gentiles. Write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, this is an incredibly difficult passage to translate. Because if you read that, you go, abstain from blood. What exactly that? Abstain from um, um, meat from strangled animals. What is he trying to tell us there? Um, we understand with food polluted by idols, we understand the Gentiles need to be told, hey, we need to teach them, there is one God. This stuff is a bunch of bull crap. I don't believe I said that. This stuff is wrong. All right? This stuff is wrong. There's one God. So, so we worship that one God, and this stuff has to go. Don't worship idols. That seems pretty straightforward, all right? The other thing is sexual immorality, And sexual immorality, as the Bible defines it, because that was something for the Gentiles, for Romans and for Greeks. I mean, and this was so shot through the whole society. If a man threw a dinner, if a rich man threw a dinner for a hundred of his friends, it was just understood there would be a hundred women there for them to use. That was just like there'd be appetizers and there'd be wine and there'd be a main course there were women children for anyone to use and that was normal that was just normal and so when he they started teaching them this is no this is wrong this is wrong you can't do this and so that was that was one of them then Uh, The the last one, where it says from blood in Acts 15, 20, the word there really is just blood, but it has the connotation of violence. And so for a lot of theologians and for this guy, he's thinking, I think this has something to do with blood sport and murder that was so common in Roman society. You could see because for the Romans, they're like, of course it's wrong to murder another Roman. But if it's a slave, no problem. If it's a person from another country, they have no rights. They're not Romans. And so he says, from blood. Now, some people take that to mean something to do with with eating, and that's fine. I mean, it's it's not like it's totally wrong because the word evidently meant so much to them at that point. But to me, the one that's interesting is the third one. From the meat of strangled animals. Now, let me tell you what the Greek word there is, pyknos. Pyknos is the Greek word that they get that from. And, and when they say meat of strangled animals, it's because they're just desperately trying. to. No one for hundreds of years knew exactly what that word meant. This guy uh, has found a, a whole bunch of references to this word pyknos. And here's how it was used. It was used most frequently for when a couple had a child that they did not want. And unfortunately, most of the time, it was a woman. It was a girl. And so they had the idea sometimes they would just put them out in the woods and say, we're giving this child to the gods. Let the gods do what they want, which really meant the child was going to be eaten alive by animals. But then that became so messy and dirty that they started what they called pyknos. The baby was born. It's a little girl. The father would shake his head and they'd smother the child. It's a word that means to smother. And here we see the beginnings of right to life. Every human has a right to life, and the church took that. And so this is a part of where the church went. This is a part of what we believe, because the right to life was a core belief of the early church. Based on biblical principles. And that's why we support CareNet, why we do fundraising drives, because we believe that. And we believe it's based on p- biblical principles. But the early church took it further. They, they said it's a right to life at, for all ages, for, for the whole life. And so for the early church, then they started thinking well, here we have some children who are going hungry, they have a right to life. And so we will establish giving food. That's why we support Thrive. In our local area, Thrive fulfills, um, um, and most of the people there are Christians, but it's not a a Christian organization in, in that sense. But they fulfill this commandment of God by going into the community and seeing injustice, especially in the area of food, and helping people. And we want to be a part of that. For all of us, Christians were the first ones who began to realize that old people, older people, we just don't get rid of them. They have a right to life. Which is why I think as believers, we should be angry at the way our nation is warehousing older people shunting them aside as if they're worthless. And if it doesn't happen to me, then I'm going to just push it away. I don't really care. We have to care. We have to care from cradle to grave I mean, for, and, and every, for everything. We have to be people because the Bible says that. The Bible tells us every person is created an image of God. And we see the early church here in Acts 15, as they struggled with that and came to an agreement, you can't. That was their abortion. You can't abort a child. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, there are these principles. And they inform us on how we should behave. When we see injustice, we have to act. We cannot look the other way. We cannot say that doesn't affect me. Because as Christians, we have been given a job. And here it is. This is from Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. What did he do? He said, I will come down. Equality will not be grasped. Up is down. Position will not be grasped from high to low. Power from all to nothing. Riches. He was rich and he became poor. To reign is to submit. To have power is to serve. To have happiness is to seek happiness in others. To exalt is to be humble. To find life, you need to lose your life. The way to blessing is to take the curse. The way to riches is to give to others. The way to honor is to honor others. The way to greatness is to give up greatness. The way to to heal others is to go through brokenness because up is down now because of Jesus Christ so that when we see injustice in our world, we have to follow Jesus' lead. He saw the injustice and what did he do? He gave up to come down. And we have to do this. And I know this is difficult. I know that there's a lot of, there's all different kinds of things that are involved here and different ways of thinking, but we have to wrestle with it. We can't ignore it. Because if we ignore it, we fall right into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who went day by day by day past this poor man. And the poor man became a part of the scenery. He doesn't affect me. and he paid for it, and he paid for it. So I don't know what the answers of all the problems we face. I don't know what the answers are to, to, to racial injustice, to, to food injustice, to health care injustice, to just, just go on and on and on. I don't know the answers. I don't pretend to know the answers, but I do know this. I have to care. I have to think of ways that maybe I can be involved. Maybe I can do something in this church, in this body of believers, and then out into our community. I have to wrestle with it. Because if I say it doesn't affect me, I become the opposite of Jesus. I'm going in the opposite direction. I become the Pharisees. And I don't want to do that. And so the Pharisees, they're amazed at the audacity of Jesus' claims, mostly because he claimed to be equal with God. And John says he's going to give us teaching. Jesus says he's going to do things that are going to amaze them even more. John here is going to offer a detailed account of what Jesus said that led the Jews to this conclusion that he thought himself equal with God. And in this conversation, Jesus is going to be astoundingly clear of exactly who he is. And this is incredibly important for us, to have an accurate understanding of what Jesus thought about himself. And what is the truth about who Jesus is? And so in this text, I see five reasons that we are to marvel. Five reasons we are to be amazed. Five reasons that we are astounded. So let's, uh, and, it, and it's going to come out of verse 20. I didn't write it down. But verse, I didn't have it yet. Verse 20, where he says, you'll see these things. You're going to be amazed. I'm going to amaze you. So what I want us to do today and then next week as we continue this sermon is we're going to walk through this and we're going to look at this and see why should we be amazed. When I was a kid, um, I, uh, I remember watching a show and, and they were showing how life was hundreds of years ago and and they showed a blacksmith coming out, you know, this big guy, you know, he had no shirt on, just his leather vest and it just looked really cool. He was big and strong like I wasn't. And, uh, and so he pulls this red hot sword which i was a kid that was enamored with fire i was a firebug and i got punished a lot for starting fires which is which is why i still start fires in my backyard i love the fire pit and burning furniture that i pick up off the side of the road it's just so fun right i have videos you'll love my video. so <laughs> that just shows you a little bit of something about me and right now right now there are people going That man is scary. Yes, yes. So this guy pulls this sword out, you know, and you know how you've seen these things. This sword is just red hot, and he's hitting it, and it's like this, you know, the sparks fly, and you hear this bang, 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 as he shapes the sword and molds it into what he wants it to be. And I was thinking about that, because right now, Jesus is going to do that. Jesus is going to hammer home to these Pharisees, and it's going to be bang, and they're going to be amazed. I mean, I remember watching that blacksmith and going, you know, I think I was like eight or nine. That is the coolest thing. And I remember turning to my dad, I want to be a blacksmith when I grow up. And he was just like, you don't know what you're talking about, kid. (laughs) And I I didn't. But it was just so cool. It was so incredible. Well, bang, Jesus now is hammering, and he's going to hammer five times and we're going to see it. First of all, be amazed because of the deeds he does. Be amazed. Jesus gave them this answer very truly, I tell you, the son of the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So why is this amazing? Well, he starts off by saying very truly there's the, the literally in the Greek it's truly truly. It's the same word said twice to create a huge emphasis. He says, I'm about to tell you something very important. Truly, truly, I tell you. Right? So there's this huge emphasis. So what's so amazing here? Well, they're upset about the Sabbath. And and they're wondering, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this in direct violation of their interpretation of God's law? And he's telling them this, because God told me to do this. Understand what's going on here. The Pharisees are like, you can't tell someone to pick up a mat and walk. That's work. He's working by carrying. That's forbidden by the law. This is how, this is how we know the law. This, we've been doing this for a thousand years. You can't tell him not to. And his answer is, God told me to. God told me to do this, to say this. I'm saying what God is saying. I'm doing what God is doing. The end of verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And see, see the force of the statement Jesus is making here? He's saying, I'm doing the will of God. He doesn't even have to say it, right? You aren't. You're out of step with God. What a tragic thing. What a tragic thing to be out of step with God. I look back, you know, taking church history and reading about church history, so many of the fights that churches had were out of step with God. Some may have been necessary, but some were just, I just must have broke God's heart to see fights like that, out of step. And he's telling them this. He doesn't say it. He just says, look, I'm doing the will of God. What are you doing, right? So Jesus is saying he's in perfect harmony with God. And he's telling them that the thing they are most upset about is something that God could care less about. It's a dangerous place. I know I said it. It's a dangerous place to be upset about something that God does not care about. I do not want that in my life. What a waste of time. I was thinking... um, Parents, you ever notice sometimes, you, especially when your kids, start, they start to imitate you, and Jesus here saying, I'm, I'm imitating my father. I'm a good son, imitating my father. When, uh, when my oldest son was like five or six, um, when I got saved, I guess I start with that. When I got saved, um, I realized that some of the words that I used in my uh, everyday vocabulary were probably not appropriate words for a person who said they were a follower of Christ to use. So I started sort of working on cutting those things out. But you ever notice when you cut things out, it's like what do I say instead? Right? You know, you hammer your finger and you go, oh, golly, that hurts. No, right? No. So what do you do? Well, I know what I did. I came up with Christian cuss words. So what I came up with, I would say stink. So it was very innocuous. Nobody thought anything of it, but it was expressing, you know, if if, if something bad, happened, "Ah, stink or, you know, something, I got hurt by something, you know, I'd say, I'd say stink. So when my son was like six years old one day, I was downstairs, and all of a sudden I heard thunk, and I said, oh, he's rolled out of bed again. Start going up the stairs, and I hear, oh, stink. And I said, he's copying me. Man, I hope he didn't hear what I said the other night. You know, I, I just started thinking, he's copying me. It has hit me like a ton of bricks, and I mean, you know, I'm a little slow. It was, I didn't get it until he was six. This kid is going to copy you. He's going to copy you. So you need to think about what you're going to do around this kid. Jesus is saying, I'm doing what my father is doing. I'm copying him. Jesus is saying he's just like the father. You see the works that Jesus is doing? You see the works that the father is doing. This is amazing. This is amazing. And we have become jaded to it. And it's not awesome to us. But it is. It's amazing. The Son is showing us the Father because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit want to be in a relationship with us. And this is amazing. This is astounding. The Creator of the universe wants to have a relationship with an insect like me. That's amazing. So be amazed because of the deeds He does. That's verse 19. Be amazed at the love between the father and the son. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. The father loves the son. This is an incredible statement. He approves of what I'm doing. I mean, just think about the Pharisees listening to this. Jesus says he approves of what I'm doing. You are mad at me. Whose side are you on? That's what he's telling them. This is shaking them to the core. They are amazed at this. Just a simple statement that the father loves his son. Because there are only two ways you can respond to a statement like that. One is to repent. The other is to respond in opposition and anger. Some of them... Nicodemus, we know, chose to repent, but many of them responded in anger and opposition because it says from then on, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to figure out a way to kill him. And then he tells them, he says, yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, greater than healing this disabled man you guys just were were barking at. Why? He says to amaze you, to create wonder, to make you realize who the Son is. God wants them. He wants us. He wants us to marvel, to wonder, to be amazed by the Son. And first and foremost is because He loves Him. So what's greater than a healing? What else is coming? What's greater than than raising Lazarus from the dead? Well see, the problem with a healing, the problem with raising Lazarus from the dead, is that the fundamental problem at the, at, at the heart of the issue for all of us as human beings is not taken care of by that. Lazarus ends up dying again. It wasn't permanent. The man who is healed ends up dying. His body decays, and he dies. The fundamental issue that human beings have the fundamental problem that human, human beings had is greater than any miracle. To forgive sins. Jesus told us that when he, when, when he healed the man who was Lord through the roof. He asked them, what's harder, healing a man or forgiving sins? And they would say probably, well, you can just say forgive sins. Who knows? So probably, and Jesus saying, I forgive your sins. And to prove that I can forgive sins, I'm going to heal you. To change a person from the inside out takes a power that we know nothing about. Every parent learns this as their kids grow older because you cannot change their heart. They have a will. They are independent. They do not necessarily do the right thing. And you realize, my only heart, my only hope is God. My only hope for my child is God. Because to change a person's heart requires a power that we do not have access to on our own. It requires God. That's the greater thing that's coming. Jesus is already pointing towards the cross. I am going to take care of the fundamental problem that has been a part of the human race all this time and will be apart from me. So if you're a Christian, you've been fundamentally changed from the inside out. You're a miracle. And yet we're not that amazed. We're not that amazed. Not as amazed as we'd be if we saw somebody get healed. But Jesus is saying you should be because this is the greater work. Sins will be taken care of and forgiven. For all of us, <clears throat> excuse me, for all of us, we need to work on being amazed. I know if I do. We need to work on at times wondering, being in, in, in amazement and awe of what God is doing, because we get used to it, and we don't think it's so great. I remember reading G.K. Chesterton, and he was talking about every morning as the sun came up, like, talking about how he believed that God was like yes. Again, he never got tired of seeing the sun come up. He never got tired of seeing flowers. He never got tired of the mundane things, and he never gets tired of the mundane things because they are a wonder. And Chesterton laments, but we have grown old, and we have learned to ignore these things. It's a sad thought. So John is going to tell us there's five things we need to be amazed at. We've gone through two. Next week will be three more as he develops. Jesus develops this argument that he knows is inciting the Pharisees to hate him because he's expressing who he truly is and expressing who they truly are. And we will look at that next week. Let's pray. We're not done though. So don't get up and leave. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that as we study it, we are changed. As we look at it, as our hearts are open to you and your truth, you create wonder. You create amazement. You create in us a longing for more, for closeness, to walk in your footsteps, to know you better. Lord, that's our heart cry. We cry it out to you because we know the only answer is you. Like Peter, we say, where should we go? You have the words of life. And so, Lord, we follow, sometimes fitfully, sometimes um, poorly, and yet we want to follow. And we thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness and your grace that comes alongside in the midst of our failures and shows us this sweet forgiveness you have for us all the time. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.